Please open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 24. It's been my prayer that God would come again tonight and meet with us, bring a word to every family, to every home, whether young or old. When we go out the doors tonight, we'll know that the Lord was here and that God drew near to you and spoke to you. It is Reformation celebration here, and as you know, we have not been looking at the historical events around that Reformation of ancient days, but the crying need there is for another Reformation in the Church of Christ today. Things need to be reformed. Families, homes, churches need to undergo some serious changes, not for change's sake, but for the sake of the Lord, for his name's sake. There's got to be, there's got to be reform. There's no getting around it. There's no excuse that can be made for why there shouldn't be reform. The thing that's staring us all in the face right now as we look at our land, as we look at the fact that the church is by Christ's own mouth the salt of the earth to stay back corruption, and that she is the light of the world to lighten the darkness, so when the times are getting darker, the light needs to shine more brightly. And when corruption is spreading, there's the great need for that salt to do its preserving work. And I have to say that that's in abeyance right now in the work of God, and we need to see it revived and refreshed and reformed. And the issue I want to deal with this evening, I personally believe is so critical, so fundamental to where it all begins, really. Joshua chapter 24, I'm going to break in. Joshua's an old man now. He's coming to the end of his life, so to speak. It's sort of his farewell address to Israel. We're going to break in at verse 14. He's called for this assembly of the people. As he comes to the conclusion of his address, he says, verse 14, Now, therefore, fear the Lord... And serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. May God be pleased to bless the public reading of his word for his name's sake. Would you please bow your head with me for a moment? Let's seek the Lord's face together. Let's all pray.
loving Father in heaven, as we stand tonight in thy presence, about to commence the declaration of the thus saith the Lord, we humbly confess our desperate need of a power that's completely outside the realm of human energy. What thy servant needs is divine unction. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray thou wilt give that in abundance. And Lord, what the people who've gathered together to hear the word is not, not the sermon, but a message from thee that they will not forget. They'll remember the rest of their lives, not because of the sermon, but because of what God said to them and how thou didst change lives through that humble and meek reception of the word of God, where we all came on a new level to not merely be hearers of the word, but doers. Thou art the one who knows every soul gathered here this evening, whether in this building or they've come via the webcast. Thou dost see us all tonight. Thou dost know what no man could ever know. Thou dost know the homes being represented here. The young people, the homes from which they come every day. Thou dost know, O God, what needs to be said this evening and what needs not be said. So guard the heart and the lips of thy servant. Bear him along throughout the message. May it be a message that has upon it the, the clothing of the glory of the Lord. And we'll be drawn away from this old world find ourselves sitting in the presence of the Almighty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My text this evening is a very familiar one that causes some apprehension on the behalf of preachers because they think because the text is so familiar that immediately the people begin to tune out because they know it oh so well. In verse 15, Joshua says to the children of Israel, Choose you this day whom ye shall serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is especially that last remark of Joshua that I want to speak to you tonight on a, what I've already said is a very vital, critical aspect of any reformation that takes place in the church. And that is family worship. Please don't tune out if you don't have a family. Please don't tune out if you happen to be a widow or widower by yourself at home. The truths that we're going to look at this evening and tomorrow evening are vital to you as well. Uh, the word of God says of his people, they shall be still shall be fat and flourishing in old age. That's what I long for you. However old you may be, however elderly you may be, that you would be fat and flourishing, bringing forth fruit in old age. It's vital, family worship. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua, as I pointed out, is an old man who's facing death. This is his final message that he will deliver to the children of Israel. And you know, a, a man's last words are usually important words. And Joshua's last words are no exception. In many ways, this is similar to the reply that took place from the lips of Moses when some 25 years earlier, he spoke to Israel one final time before his death. You recall what he said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I call heaven and earth to record, record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life 
Choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. You and your family may live. He pleased with them to choose life. To choose life would mean that they would set themselves to learn how to live the kind of life that Jehovah wanted them to live. That's what it means to choose life. The life that he lays down in his word. To live a life to his glory. It means that they would love the Lord and walk in his ways and would Strive to keep his commandments so that they and their children would know, they would know the blessing of God upon their families, upon their children, and if it's carried on upon their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, and so it would go on if they would choose life because there was a decision put before them. Just as there was a decision that Joshua put before the children of Israel. And just whether we see it or not, there is a decision that's going to be put before. I have no doubt in my mind, many people here this evening. A decision. A choice that you have to make. Negatively, it meant that they would not through refusing to hear God's word, be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. That would be the heritage for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now Joshua says, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's clear from Scripture that Christian parents are to cultivate the mind and the spirit of the child through admonitions, through rebukes, through discipline, through exhortations, through encouragements. All of that combined together in order that their children would grow up to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways. That's the aim always when you rear a family. Always. There's no option for the Christian. Christian parents are to take all the, all the biblical means at their disposal to lead their children to prayerfully one day bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Own him as the only Savior of sinners. Own him as their Lord and Savior. To follow him the rest of their life. Does this mean that bringing them to Sunday school and church isn't really that important? Of course not. But it does mean that the primary responsibility of giving your children spiritual direction rests upon the parents. Not the pastor, not the elders, not the deacons, not the Sunday school teachers, not the teachers in the Christian school. It rests squarely on the shoulder of the parents, mom and dad. God has laid that primary responsibility for training up the child in the way he should go, not the way he would go, not the way he wants to go, not the way she wants to go, but the way he should go upon mother and father. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
I need to point out in passing that that is not one of those unconditional promises in the Word of God. It's a general promise. Generally speaking, if you train up a child in the way they should go, when they're old, they won't depart from it. But it's not ironclad. We all know that there have been many, many a a godly family that have raised children as the best they could in the ways of God, but they went off and rejected the God of their mother and their father, and they perished in their sin. There are certain promises in God's word that are ironclad, that are guaranteed, but not that one. Yet it's still, it's still our, our job, our privilege, and our burden to train them up in the way they should go. It's about this matter of what Joshua meant when he said that he and his house were determined to serve the Lord that I want to speak to you this evening about restoring family worship. Restoring family worship. Joshua is an old man now and he's not long for this world. It's very important. You you can tell the, the burden is on his heart. He knows these people so well. He was with them all throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. Moses has been dead for 25 years. He knows them so well. He knows their tendencies. And the thing that's on his heart, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whom you and your families will serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. You see, there was a need in his day for a restoration of true family worship. Worshiping only the Lord's in the family. And the same need is facing us in this 21st century. These words of Joshua are of the utmost importance. That thing that rises above everything else tonight, and I pray it'll be something that's burned into your own souls, is that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It doesn't matter if you have this text of Scripture framed and on the wall in your house. You can have all kinds of verses on the walls, but know really nothing of the spiritual reality of those truths in your home Joshua's mindset restored in simple way when we're done is from the state of things in Christ's church and time again. I know it's not possible, but I would have loved the opportunity to have every parent from the school in the meeting tonight and tomorrow night. I believe there's nothing like this that will begin a reformation in family worship. Nothing. I believe it's fallen by the wayside. I, I, I believe, I fear that in many Christian homes it's either not done at all or it is just a quick reading of a verse At the table when dinner is finished, a quick prayer is uttered, and then everybody rushes off to do their own thing, and that is not family worship. The truth is something much more deeply is needed in the Christian home if we hope to see a reformation in the church, because that's where it all begins. As I said yesterday, the church is made up of families. What happens in the home directly affects what happens in the church. Restoring family worship is high on the priority list of things that must be reformed. I only have two very simple points this evening. We'll get down into the 
nitty-gritty of what that's about, family worship tomorrow night, but tonight just a couple of precursors to what we must see and believe regarding this restoration of family worship. Number one, there are strong arguments for family worship. There are strong arguments for family worship. In the first place, the godly homes mentioned in Scripture practiced family worship. We can take Joshua for an example. When Joshua spoke of his house, he was not referring to the tribe from which he came, but he was referring to his household and to his own family. That day, after listing some of the, some of the great mercies of God, He'd shown them, and after he had exhorted them to to fear the Lord and to serve him, he says, in essence, if you don't serve the Lord, I want you all to know that I and my house will serve him. Not only will I worship the Lord, but my family will worship him as well. There are several ways to interpret this word serve. I will serve. We will serve the Lord. The various ways of serving the Lord are very broad and deep. But if you carefully consider the context, always take the context. If you carefully consider the context, you'll see that this Joshua was using this idea of serving the Lord in the context of worship. So let's just get that one settled He's dealing with service to the Lord in the context of of worship. Again, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. So can we not put in the word worship there where you find serve and it makes sense? Right? Now, therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers worshipped on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and worship ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to worship the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will worship, whether the gods which your fathers worshipped that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, in whose land. But as for me and my house, we will worship. The Lord. Worship. Service is worship. It may not have crossed your mind, but we often refer to them as the Lord's Day services. The morning service, the evening service is the morning worship. And the evening worship. Serving other gods was all about bowing down to them. Praying to them. Depending upon them. Looking to them. Doing what you thought those gods wanted you to do. In order to get the things that you thought they would give you. That is why I say that Joshua is... Dealing here at the very least, at the very least, with family worship. Don't think for a moment that Joshua or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob would actually think about corporate worship without thinking about worship in their tents. He's speaking of his household worshiping the Lord. And that would mean reciting, rehearsing, teaching the law of the Lord to the children, God's will, explaining that word to his family, praying together, and what Joshua is saying, this is what I want all of you to do. 
the inference we must draw is that we, we cannot, we cannot as families properly serve the Lord apart from family worship. You cannot properly worship the Lord in this sanctuary if there's not family worship in the home. Do you see that? What you have at home is what you bring to church. Or what you don't have at home is what you don't bring to church. It's not enough to go to church on the Lord's Day. That's where you belong. Granted, I, 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 I don't think I need to say that. It's the Lord's Day. It's not... Your day, it's not mine. I know every day is the Lord's day. I get that. But he's the one who set aside that one day from all the rest to be his day. It's, you've got six other days to do your own thing within the confines of God's law, of course. But the Lord says that this day is uniquely mine. So you come to worship the Lord. That's, that's the given. But it's not enough to faithfully attend God's house on the Lord's day and it's not enough to faithfully attend the midweek prayer meeting I've never discussed this with Pastor Eshelman so just so you know it's not coming from him it's coming from me who has pastored two churches over 30 some years you need to be in the prayer meeting faithfully attending the midweek prayer meeting and to engage in the prayer time to open your mouth and to call upon the Lord. This is part of how we, it's, it's the prayer meeting. It means we, we're there to pray primarily. We're there to pray. And that needs to be, I mean, that's a whole nother series, isn't it? Dealing with the need of the prayer lives of God's people to be reformed. But this, this is not my main thrust here. But you need to be in the prayer meeting and, and engage in the place of prayer and not be afraid of what someone will think of your praying as if they're going to judge your words. It kind of baffles me when people are afraid of other people when they hear them pray, but they're going to the God of all the universe and they don't give much thought about that. So you need to be in the prayer meeting. But that's, that's not what we're really... You can do all those things. Go, go to church faithfully every Sunday. You can be at all the prayer meetings. And it's, it's not enough even to be busy in full-time Christian service, as we call it. Our homes must be built upon and around the worship of God at the family altar. And can I ask you now, do you have a family altar? We're living at a time when even that language is foreign to many. A number of years ago when my church in Orlando, there was a young couple who came out, Christians. And I spoke that morning about the family altar it happened that we were having them back to our house for a Sunday meal after the service. And after dinner, he was asking me, could, could I see your family altar? And I knew then he did not know what a family altar was. Do you have a family altar? To neglect this is to neglect the souls of your family. And it carries a very hefty price. After Joshua's death, you read in Judges chapter 2, after his death, it was fine. They, they, they did what they said they were going to do. Here at the end of Joshua, but after he died, there arose another generation which knew not the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. What happened? 
Somewhere along the line, they forgot those words of Joshua. Homes in Israel, I can only conclude, began to neglect family worship. They began to neglect God's word, God's law. They began to neglect family prayer. Look what happened. A generation arose that had no personal knowledge of the Lord. And that generation went off into idolatry. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that presently, poll after poll after poll, the young people are leaving in droves from our churches? I'm very, very suspicious that we could trace this back to there was no family altar in the home. The children did not see mom and dad worshiping God in the home, only at church on Sunday. That's the only taste they got of it. Why would they not walk away from it if that's all the reality that there was to worship, to Christianity. The church, your church, will never be any stronger than the spirituality of the families that make it up. Worship in public finds its strength from worship in private. I must come to the conclusion from this text that every Christian family in this church is being charged by Almighty God, it's the Spirit of God that gave us this word, being charged by Almighty God to establish and maintain family worship. That must be your choice if you profess to be Christians. It matters not how busy your schedule or how busy the schedules of your children. Doesn't matter. They take a back seat to this. You have to arrange things so you can meet as a family around God's word and the throne of grace. The second argument for establishing, maintaining the family worship, whenever God has sent revival to his church, family worship has always flourished. Lay hold of any book, any account of revival that's out there, and you will find that family worship flourished when the Holy Spirit came down upon his people. We, we tend to get caught up with the, the exciting things about people falling out in the floor and screaming and crying and all of that. It's interesting but what's really interesting to me is that it, 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 it reached into the homes. Fathers who had no time at all to pray with their children now must pray with them. Husbands and wives must find themselves coming together to seek the Lord. Whole households are influenced. Family worship. The Holy Ghost is being poured out. There's a sanctifying, there's a purging work that's being done amongst the people of God. And what's happening? Homes are being reformed. Family prayer starts up. The other things, the sports, the entertainment, the friends i got to go see, the, the social media I've got to catch up on, it's not important. Listen to this account of the Puritan 
Richard Baxter that he experienced during his ministry at Kidderminster. On the Lord's day, there was no disorder to be seen in the streets. But you might hear a hundred families singing psalms and repeating sermons as you passed through the streets. When I came thither first, there was about one family in a street that worshipped God and called on his name. And when I came away, there were some streets where there was not above one family in the side of a street that did not so. When I came, there was only one, maybe one in the street that would worship the Lord in the home. But when I left, you'd have a hard time finding a street that wasn't going on. Imagine walking down the streets and hearing the families in public and and private worship, worshiping God, singing the Psalms and, and rehearsing sermons. Sounds weird, doesn't it? But should it? I say, brothers and sisters, what we're experiencing is far more of the abnormal Christian family and what he was seeing was more of the normal Christian family. There's a third argument. It would make your home much happier if you faithfully practiced family worship. It would make your home much happier if you faithfully practiced family worship. I have no qualms at all about using happiness as a motivation. None. I say that because God himself continually uses that in his word to motivate his people to live right. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Happy is that man. Over and over again, God says, you want to be happy? Then here's the way. That's motivation. It would make your home much happier if you faithfully practiced family worship. Not for one moment am I saying, suggesting that there won't ever be a fight in your family. That there won't be times of sadness or anger. You know, the day you got married, it was a couple of sinners that said, I do. Hmm. I I remember someone saying that getting married was like getting a phone call in the middle of the night. You get a ring and then you wake up. Only those of you who have been married understand that little bit of humor. But it's true. The Lord is not promising a perfect home. But I think there's a whole, I know there's a whole lot of happiness that could be enjoyed if there was a family altar in place. Do you have a family altar? Do you? One old divine said this, Family prayer is the oil which removes friction and causes all the complicated wheels of the family to move smoothly and noiselessly. I like that. It's oil. And all those complicated gears are got to just mesh together. And if they're not meshing together and they're not oiled, it's all squeaky and, and, and irritating. You know when it's like that in the home. But brothers and sisters, it can't stay like that if you honestly come together as a family and open up this book and say, God, speak to us and call upon the Lord. That's the oil. Is your home happy? 
Oh, you might be keeping all the rules and regulations. You're crossing the T's and dotting the I's. But that's not what I'm asking you. I say, is your home happy? Is it a happy home? It's one way, and I believe the very best way, for bringing all of the members of the family together to promote that harmony that's so fundamental to the holiness and the consequent happiness of the home. Holiness yields happiness. And what, I mean, it's like to me, my wife never liked me saying this, but she's in glory. And whether or not she knows I'm going to say this, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Because the fact of the matter, this is a no-brainer. You want happiness, then get holiness. You want holiness, then you make use of the means of grace to obtain more holiness. The holier we are, the happier we are. And can we see how destructive not having the family altar, not having family worship actually is to our holiness and to the holiness of the family and therefore it's not going to produce happiness. The the only unity I, I fear that some families, Christian families have is that they live under the same roof and eat at the same table. But even when they do meet for a meal around the table, it isn't with an eye toward family fellowship. Kids come up to the table and they're all gloomy and sullen and sulking and pouting. They're ready to find fault and to pick a fight. Or, Or it's like, let me hurry up and eat this. So I can get out of here and do my own thing. They have no time for the family. And there's a reason for that. You know, it's a sad state of affairs when family members can be so, so out of sorts with each other that they find it easier to speak to a stranger than they do their own brother or sister or mother or father. That's sad. But I fear that's often how it is. The great need is not, not to simply have the form of worship, a semblance of prayer. It's like anything else. It can become mechanical and A mechanical family altar is not much better than no altar. Just going through the motions and actually kind of salving the conscience and not really dealing with the issue that needs to be dealt with. And that is this reality of true worship. Just the same thing that you look for and pray for in a church. That What you want is true worship. What you want is people meeting with Christ. I was in Calgary last Sunday and speaking to one of the young ladies and it just blessed my heart. She was commenting on the message and how the Lord spoke to her. I said, you know, I never want to come and just preach a sermon and give information and give you all the facts and the doctrines. And she just said, yeah, you want to meet with Christ. You want to meet with Christ. You want a word from the Lord. So it comes to family worship. You want the reality of of true worship at home. What is needed is to come together and to take the Bible that speaks of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness and humility and love and read it together and when you're done reading 
and asking the questions and explaining, you turn to God and you say, Our Father. And you know, you know you're talking to God. That's what's needed. Confessing your sins, giving thanks for mercies, asking the Lord to bless the family. You'd find out that your family altar will have a very positive effect upon the happiness in your home. And perhaps you're sitting there tonight and saying, Pastor Wagner, my home's pretty happy. Would you believe me when I say it can be a lot happier than it is? I mean, do you think you've actually reached the pinnacle of happiness in your home? As I was preparing the message, I, I wondered how many Christian marriages would be transformed if the husband and wife just prayed regularly together. There may not be children at home. You may have grown up and they've gone now. You may have no kids. But just for the husband and wife to pray regularly together. I was, before heading out to Canada a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a radio broadcast. It was a sort of those broadcasts where they have speakers come in dealing with family issues. And he told the account of a man who came to him in his church. He said, my marriage is over. It's done. It's Christian. You know, there's, it's gone. There's no flame. There's no fire. There's no nothing. We're just existing together. And he advised him, I tell you what I want you to start doing. Start praying with your wife. He said, what? Pray with my wife? Pastor, you don't understand how bad this is. Would you do this? All right. He came back several weeks later and said his marriage was transformed. Transformed. Because he began to pray with his wife. You see, when you get into earnest about praying before God, you become very vulnerable. All, all the, the, the shields, the barriers come down. Now you're talking to God who knows you thoroughly. And when husbands and wives can come together like that, my, it creates a bond that nothing else can. How, how many marriages would be reformed if there was just a family altar and it's just husband and wife coming together at the altar. Is that something that you could start in your home tonight? Oh, I imagine it will be awkward at first because you haven't done it ever. Or maybe it's been years since you've done it. But don't you see, brothers and sisters, this is where reform begins. It begins in the home. The very basic unit of society. Would you make that your choice tonight? Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said this, A family without prayer is like a house without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. There are great arguments for establishing and maintaining a family altar. My second and final point. It is vital that you are walking with God if family worship is to be effective. 
Take careful note that Joshua was speaking as, as the head of his family and he was speaking for his family. As for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. He had confidence about that. He could speak for them. My family, we're going to go worshiping God. I draw the conclusion that Joshua must have wielded tremendous influence over his family. He had great influence with his kids and his grandkids. They were behind him on this. And Joshua was leading the way. I want to say to every father here tonight that God has placed you as the spiritual head, the spiritual leader in your family. You are the priest of God in your family. It is your, it is your responsibility to be the spiritual leader in your home. It is your responsibility to be the spiritual leader of your wife and your children in family worship. It lies on your shoulders. An obligation to train up your children in the way that they should go. And there is no way you can do that aright if you're not gathering for family worship. That is not an exaggerated statement. You cannot do that aright if you're not gathering together for family worship. You are neglecting your responsibility as a father. It's not, it's not your wife's responsibility to take this lead. It is yours and yours alone because the spiritual upbringing and training of your children lies upon you. As I said, not with the pastor, not with the Sunday school teachers, not with the Christian school teachers. If there is no father in the home, or a father who by and large is no desire to engage in family worship, then mom must step up to the plate. You must do that. Family worship is not an option. I, I, I pray that God would make us all feel the solemnity of the weight of this responsibility. You, you don't know how much it would thrill my soul if I got news from Pastor Eshelman, Mr. Wagner, there, there's something going on at RBC. The families that have never had family worship before are now having it. And what, what a change is taking place. Because you heard the Lord speak to you this week and say, this has got to change. I must point out to fathers and mothers alike, however, that vital to your influence of your family in the home and worship is your own walk with God. Joshua says, as for me, that's first, as for me, he could speak for his house because he could speak for himself. Joshua was he was worshiping the Lord in private, and therefore he was able to lead his household in family worship. I, I can't stress enough the utter, the utter necessity of having your own private altar before the Lord in order and able to have the family altar in order. The private altar has to be in order for the family altar to be in order. And for the public worship to be in order, the family altar has to be in order. I remember reading 
a lot of years ago now, one of Spurgeon's, I think it was the morning devotion, his morning and evening, he was dealing with a text about Old Testament Israel. The fire was never to go out. And he said to make sure that you keep your private altar, the fire there burning, because that's where the family altar gets its heat. It's simple to understand that. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to come to the family altar uh, with, with, with a fire with a desire in your own soul, wanting to meet with God, if that's not taking place in your own private altar. Power at the family altar comes from having power in the private altar. Family worship really begins in the closet, not in the living room. How different family worship becomes when dad and mom are in touch with the Lord. And they're not bickering and fighting all the time in front of the kids. But they're both in touch with God. And they're walking in harmony with the Lord and the children see it. The children hear dad off praying. They hear mom off praying in the bedroom. It's real. It's not just showtime at family worship. They're actually living like this. It's real to them. And that is something as they grow older that they will never forget. It's real to them. They weren't phonies. They weren't fakes who only had the plastic smile at church on Sunday. No, they lived it before us. I understand. Believe you me, I understand. We had seven kids. I understand the battle that you face in this. I would not make light of it. If there is one area in which Satan will attack the Christian the most, it's his prayer closet. That's why it's so hard. To maintain a consistent, serious prayer life. That's why it's such a battle. And it never is going to get easier. The more diligent you become at the throne of grace, the greater the attack will be of the devil. I get it. Pastors, let me let you all in a little secret. Pastors struggle the same way that you do. We have seasons of prayerlessness? Yes. To our shame. What I found out after I stepped down from the ministry to take care of my wife, I began to appreciate the layman in the pew. You see, it was my having to study the word of God every week and having to pray every week for those messages that sort of keeps you right, you know. But when that stopped, Boys, oh boys, I have found some struggles going on. That, that, that drive to get along with God and to pray for the congregation, to pray for the sheep, to pray for the messages. So I, I, I'm telling you, I get it. I understand the struggle. I know there's a reason he opposes it so much because he has seen so often what God has done through his people in prayer. He's seen it and he knows it just transforms. And that's why he wants to destroy family altars, family worship. He knows what it does to the family. He does tremble, as Cowper said. He does tremble when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. He's got thousands of years of experience in seeing what God does through prayer. Therefore, I understand it is a battle every day to get to that place of prayer and call upon the Lord. But I also know that however hard that battle 
may be, we must get alone and pray, and we must get alone and pray for our spouses and for our children and for our church, but especially praying for our children. Seven kids. Five are saved and walking with the Lord. Two are lost, as lost can be. All I can do is pray. As I prayed for years for them. Wouldn't it be tragic one of your children goes off the rails, rejects everything you taught them. Oh, they were catechized faithfully. They memorized so many verses. They were there at every Sunday school class, at every church service, but something changed and they went off the rails. And you had no family altar. You had no prayers for them. It's not just a matter, I have to go on and say, it's not just a matter of, of keeping your prayer closet in order. But it's a matter of keeping your life in order. If you and I are devout, so devout in prayer, but unholy in practice, if we are heavenly minded at the family altar and frivolous, or proud, or passionate the rest of the day. We can pray ever so graciously and ever so nicely with all the right words and have a fuse that's so short and so impatient and so unkind If we teach our children in the morning around the family altar to be not conformed to this world, but then do that which actually teaches them to conform themselves to the world by our pattern. If we pray for our family to be meek and gentle and kind one to another and to treat one another without rudeness or haughtiness, And then what they see us doing is just the opposite. Haughty and rude and critical, fault-finding. It doesn't bode well. That's why I say, brothers and sisters, it is so critical that our life is in order. Isn't this what the church needs in our day? Christians Christian mothers and fathers who would take up this, this, this very statement of Joshua, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Just, just, just think with me for a moment how things would change, because Reformation is about change. How do you think your home would change if you have no family altar? and you started one sincerely coming together as a family, however much opposition you got from it, however awkward it may seem, imagine what would begin to change if you commenced a family altar. Imagine what would change if you went home tonight and you said, honey, let's pray. Think upon the impact it would have upon your children, upon you, but above everything else, upon the work of God and his glory. Isn't that what it's all about?
his glory. What will it be? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. We trust that thou hast been speaking to hearts and homes tonight. We pray for lasting fruit. We pray for those needed reforms in our lives. Lord, thou dost know our heart of hearts that we don't want to grieve thee. We want to glorify thee. So come and preach on, we pray. Effect the change that must be made by that wonderful power of the Holy Spirit and the power of thy word. All for thy glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.